Hello and welcome, friends, to the Independence Day edition of Sustainability Now here on your community radio station. We are independent community media declaring ourselves fully independent of the mainstream, the corporate, the advertisers, even the government. We are fully independent community powered because of you contributing to keep this station on the air. So go to FordRadio.org right now if you're not listening there, if you're tuning us in on the FM dial at 106.5 FM. But go to FordRadio.org, click donate today, chip in 20 bucks, and you can sponsor the entire day's broadcast and keep us independent and vibrant, not just for Independence Day, but the whole rest of the year. And then volunteers make the station happen too. I'm a volunteer. I declare my independence from work as I volunteer for this station. And we'd love to have more community voices behind these microphones. So go to forwardradio.org, click on participate, pitch us a show you want to do. Maybe it's about how you've declared independence from all kinds of evil and horrible things. Hey, go to forwardradio.org, click participate now. Let us know what you want to do. We'll get you on the air. Well, what we do on sustainability now is talk about how we can all be sustainable now and declare our independence from the injustices and the environmental destruction that are just so common in everyday life. And for this special July 4th Independence Day edition of the show, I wanted to highlight a really important way that we can declare our independence from fossil fuels and turn instead to the power of the sun. That's right. I'm going to bring you some more highlights from the June 4th Kentucky Solar Energy Society annual meeting held at the University of Louisville. Forward Radio was there in the basement of Ekstrom Library getting you some awesome content that I was really looking forward to sharing out with the public. Uh, if you weren't able to attend in person, what we're going to focus on today are some really practical tips for homeowners or businesses who are just thinking about going solar. Some, we're going to hear from Andy McDonald, who is the director of Apogee Climate and Energy Transitions. It's a program of Earth Tools. You can learn more about them at apogeeclimate.org. That's A-P-O-G-E-E-Climate.org. He's going to give a little Solar Energy 101. And then we're going to hear a very interesting presentation. I learned a lot from this. This one, I didn't know so much about batteries for home solar applications. You don't always need battery. In fact, most grid-tied solar systems don't have batteries, but there's sometimes when that would make sense. And we're going to learn what those systems are like and why you would want to consider using batteries from Patrick Farrell of Solar Energy Solutions. So this is going to be some very helpful stuff for people who are considering declaring their independence from fossil fuels and powering their home, business, church, nonprofit, whatever they need, getting their power from the sun instead of fossil fuels. This is exactly what we need to do on this Independence Day. So stay tuned, my friends. This is going to be great. And I take you back now to June 4th. And we're here from Andy McDonald here on Sustainability Now. I've been working with uh, Apogee Climate and Energy Transitions uh, out of Frankfurt, which is a program of Earth Tools Incorporated. And I've been working with solar energy in Kentucky for nearly 20 years now. I started with Appalachia Science in the Public Interest, which started the Kentucky Solar Partnership um, with funding from the Million Solar Roofs Initiative, 
started by the Clinton administration. And we did a lot of uh, educational programming and demonstration projects and the like for about 10 years or more based in Rockcastle County at the time. So today I'm going to talk with you about um, just sort of an introduction to solar energy. Uh, some of it may seem maybe very basic for some of you or it may be new. So most of my presentation is going to deal with photovoltaic systems um, as those are the predominant uh, use of solar energy at this time. So if you're interested in using solar energy at your home or for your business, um, it's important to start with a solar energy assessment. And an energy assessment will start with evaluating your energy usage. You need to size the system based upon the usage um, at your home. <clears throat> so you also need to talk about what your, your needs and your goals are. And the energy assessment is related to the question of should I install solar or how much solar should I install, but there's a more there's, it's a broader question of how much energy are you using, and from various standpoints, using solar energy, it's in itself not necessarily the only goal. Um, you may be wanting to reduce your energy costs, reduce your environmental impact, become more resilient in your home, and so there are. It's important to think about what your your needs and your goals are when you're thinking about solar energy or other energy efficiency investments for your home. And then the strategies that you'll use will depend upon both what, what your needs and goals are and what resources are that are available to you. So if you, you know, the resources that you have depend upon, well, your, your house itself. Do you have, um, are you living in a very drafty old house? Um, are you a renter or do you own your home? Um, that's going to be a big factor. Um, if you are a renter, it's going to be a lot more difficult to put solar on your home. And does your house have good solar access? Um, is your roof suitable for putting solar on it? And if you have, say, a very drafty house that consumes a lot of energy, you're, you may be better off investing in tightening up your house, insulating, air sealing, improving your HVAC system, things like that before investing in solar because you won't need as large of a solar energy system if your house is consuming less energy. So these are the kinds of questions that you would consider during an energy assessment. And then you would also need to look at the, the impact, what, what utility you're, you're a member of and does the utility allow you to interconnect to their grid and use uh, using net metering, for example. So in, in much of Kentucky, net metering is available and that allows you to interconnect. Um, but in some parts of the state, net metering is not available, um, or there are different rules depending upon the utility. So these are all different factors that go into doing an energy assessment on your property. And then, as I, as I was saying, um, it's important to do things in the right order in order to maximize the value of the investment that you're making. If you just put solar on a very drafty, inefficient house, you may reduce your electricity bill, but your house will still be just as drafty and uncomfortable as it was before. But if you insulate and air seal it, that investment will also make your house more comfortable while reducing your energy costs and also will reduce the, the size and the cost of whatever solar energy system you would need in the future. And then the, the site assessment will look at the, the physical structure of the house, where it lays on the landscape, um, where you have the most solar access, and you'll, you may end up considering, should I put solar on my roof or should the solar be ground mounted? If you have a shady roof, you may have uh, a place in the yard which is not shaded, which would be more suitable. And uh, ground mounted systems work very well also. You'll also need to look back at your utility bills 
and see how much energy you've been using over the past several years. The more years of utility data that you have, the better perspective you're going to have on your, on your requirements. I often find people have a hard time getting together more than one year of data. So if I can get one year of utility bills, um, I'll work with that. But if you have more than that, you, if you have two or three years, you can get an even better sense of your average. And when you're looking at your utility bills, you also want to consider, um, have, have there been any dramatic changes? Like during COVID, there were very dramatic changes in how we used our homes. And so looking at a person's utility bill only from 2020 might not give a realistic idea of what their house usage will be in the future. Or if they replaced their HVAC system in the past couple months, uh, that would have had an impact on the energy, energy bills. So you need to do some, do some thinking uh, and, and considering in addition to looking at the numbers in the bills. So in addition, or moving on from the energy assessment, there are a number of categories of different types of solar electric systems. There are off-grid and standalone systems, and there are grid-tied or net-metered systems. And there, there, are, as there are other types of solar technologies. There's passive solar for heating and cooling and lighting. There's solar thermal, which uses a heat energy to heat, heat fluids, whether that could be air or that could be water or a heat exchange fluid like antifreeze. But for most of this presentation, I'm just going to focus on solar electricity. So off-grid standalone systems are systems that are not connected to, to the utility grid and have some type of battery backup usually. And the design of off-grid systems is quite different than the design of grid-side systems because they have very different limitations and different equipment that's required. Off-grid systems, they because you are completely independent of the grid, you have to design the system to satisfy the need, the electricity need. And so your installer needs to do a careful evaluation of how much energy you require at different times of the year. And generally an off-grid system will be sized um, for the winter time when the available sunlight is least. And so you really need to understand what your electrical loads are in the winter time, especially. But it's not necessary but it's not necessarily the winter that will drive your loads. So you just need to look at your particular circumstance. For example, if you have a farm and you run a walk-in cooler in the summertime, then uh, maybe that's what drives your highest load and would need to drive your system design. But very commonly for a, a common off-grid home, the wintertime usage drives the design. And then the size of the battery is determined by your electrical consumption, as well as how many days of freedom, how many days of autonomy you want to have. So in the wintertime, you'll get, you might get five or six days without any sun. And when you're off-grid, you either are using the sunlight directly or you're using your batteries. And so the battery bank gets sized to carry you through all those days of cloudy weather. And then you need to consider, well, what am I going to do if the batteries run down and, it, and the sun doesn't come out? Are you comfortable being without electricity for a period of time? Or are you, are you going to put in a generator so that you can recharge the batteries with a generator when worse comes to worse? And those types of considerations all go into the off-grid design. And so if you're living off-grid, or if you're thinking about living off-grid, you have to be a lot more mindful about your energy consumption and uh, all the appliances you're using in your house and how you meet all your needs. So for example, 
Um, if you wanted to be off-grid, you may not have a conventional HVAC system because they really consume a lot of electricity. So a lot of folks that I know who are off-grid heat with a combination of passive solar and wood stove. And then very often you don't have air conditioning in off-grid homes because air conditioning is a high energy load. However, you can use air conditioning in, in off-grid situations if you, without building a, a gigantic system, if you just expect to run the air conditioning in the summer when the sun's available and not draw from your batteries. And you can make that work too. So there's a lot of design considerations that go into off-grid living as well as off-grid PV system design. The primary equipment in the off-grid system includes the solar panels and the racking, an inverter which converts the solar electricity, which is direct current, into alternating current if you want to have AC appliances, and then a charge controller which regulates the power output from the solar array and ensures that the batteries charge properly. Um, without a charge controller, your, your batteries, if you connected your photovoltaic panels to your batteries directly without a charge controller, you would pretty quickly overcharge and destroy your batteries. Um, so you need a charge controller, and some are very small and simple, and some are larger and more sophisticated, um, and it depends upon your needs and your budget what type of charge controller you would require. And not all off-grid systems have inverters, some off-grid systems use direct current only, and you can do that. But because most of the appliances that we use on a daily basis were designed for AC power, inverters are very common in off-grid systems. And there are very simple, lower-cost inverters that don't have a lot of power output. And there are larger inverters that have a much higher power output, which can handle a wider range of appliances. So choosing the equipment is a uh, significant element in the design process to, to make sure that the equipment meets the needs of the customer. So moving on to um, grid-tied and net-metered systems. I often use these terms interchangeably, but there's, they're not exactly identical. They don't exactly mean the same thing. Grid-tied systems is a broader category of which net-metering is a subset. So if you have a PV system and it's connected to the grid, you're grid-tied. But you may not have net-metering available. Net-metering is the policy structure that allows the customer to get credit for the energy that they put back on the grid at a specified rate and enables the customer to interconnect with the utility. There are maybe 35 or 40 states that have net metering policies and Kentucky's one of them. And Kentucky's net metering law dates back to about 2003 and in many respects is a good net metering law. And the utilities worked very hard for several years to kill net metering. And they didn't quite kill it, but they did it harm. But with thanks, many thanks to Matt and the SIA and many of the people in this room and many people around the state, uh, we were able to preserve many of the key facets of net metering. In essence, net metering is what, what allows you to interconnect with the utility and have a formal, relation, a formal agreement with the utility of how they deal with the energy that you produce and the energy you consume and the energy that you feed back to them. So this is an example of a net meter, two net metered systems. This is Earth Tools, the company that I work for, um, which primarily sells agricultural equipment, but we have a clean energy side of the company. And Earth Tools now has three different net metered systems adding up to about 32 kilowatts. So in a, in a net metering arrangement, solar electric system on your house is tied into an inverter. The inverter converts direct current from the solar panels to alternating current 
and matches it to the voltage and the frequency on the utility grid. And then that connects to the, the meter normally through the electric service panel where, where all your breakers are. And when you're using electricity and the sun is shining, you will likely be using the energy that you produce directly. But if you produce more than you need, that excess solar energy flows back through your meter and flows into the, the utility system and goes to your neighbor's house, in fact. And your neighbor uses those electrons. But the utility gives you a credit for the energy you've produced. And in traditional net metering, the energy that you push back to the utility is valued the same as the energy that you consume from the utility on a one-to-one -one basis. And so a kilowatt hour produced is worth the same as a kilowatt hour consumed. The beauty of that is it makes it very simple to calculate the, the financial savings if you're gonna put in a, a solar system on your home. And that's one of the most important things about net metering is it's simple. And when the utilities lobbied the legislature to change net metering, it ended up going to the Public Service Commission. The, the statute requires the Public Service Commission to decide how the utilities will be compensated for the cost of serving net metering customers. And the Solar Energy Society, along with the Solar Energy Industry Association and other organizations, intervened in three cases where the utilities applied to change their net metering um, in, in rate cases. And the end result was that the commission set the, the rate for excess power that you generate back to the utility at approximately 75 to 80% of the retail rate. And so any, if you are a new net metering customer, in Louisville or in as a customer of Louisville uh, Gas and Electric or Kentucky Utilities, the energy that you, can, that you produce and consume immediately is still valued at the retail rate. But if you feed power back to the utility, they convert that to around seven cents per kilowatt hour. And then that gets credited to your bill. So there's a, and that compares to the retail rate, which is around 10 cents per kilowatt hour. <clears throat> So the changes to net metering make it a little more complicated for the customer to calculate their, their savings um, and gives the utility a little bit more of an advantage and takes away some of the value for the customer. This is another example of a net metering system in Frankfurt, a system that Earth Tools installed a few years ago on a golf course. This is a net metering system at a shop in downtown Frankfurt. This is my home. My, my wife and I have an organic farm in Frankfurt and we renovated an old farmhouse uh, using passive solar design. And we were able to be net zero on less than 2.3 kilowatts in our home. So when you're looking at putting solar on your property, it's good to have an idea of system sizing, of what size system is needed to serve your needs and to have an idea of costs. So in Kentucky, if you are, you know, your, your solar array is gonna produce energy depending upon the site conditions. So if a solar panel is at a, facing due south at an optimal tilt angle, which is around 35 degrees if it's at a fixed tilt, then it's going to produce around 1,300 kilowatt hours per year in Kentucky. If it was in Arizona, it would produce more. If it was in Alaska, it would probably produce less. But in Kentucky, that's the number that you can expect for an optimally located fixed array. And then when you do the site assessment, you you can make some you do some offsetting. So if there's some shade, you figure, well, you're going to produce a little less. If your roof is facing southeast or southwest or due east or due west, you're going to produce less. And then the cost for installing a grid-type system is in the range of $2.25 to maybe $3.25 a watt. Again, it depends on the site conditions and your circumstances, but that's kind of a ballpark range. And so if 
if you're an average homeowner, you're probably using in the range of around um, 12,000 kilowatt hours a year. So you probably need somewhere between eight and nine kilowatts to be net zero. And um, if you're a more energy efficient home, then you would be using less energy and so you could put in a smaller system. If you use more energy than that, then you need a larger system if you're aiming for net zero. And then that comes around to the question of what size system are you going to install? When you do the energy assessment, you're going to think about what would you, what could you install if you were going to be net zero, but is net zero your goal? Maybe it's not. But even if it is, maybe you can't fit eight kilowatts on your roof or in your yard. And so the limitations of your situation might not enable you to put in a net zero system or your budget may not allow you. You may get uh, your an installer may come out to your house and say, yeah, we can put an eight kilowatt system on your home and that will meet 100% of your annual consumption. But then they'll bring you back the quote and you'll discover you can't afford, uh, you don't have the money available. So then you might say, well, we'll put in a system that would meet 50% of our needs right now. And maybe in a couple years, we'll expand it and get to 100%. Or maybe this, I'll use this as a motivation to figure out how I can become more energy efficient and go from being 50% to net zero without expanding my solar array but by becoming more efficient. And so this, this um, kind of rule of thumb just can, can be helpful if, if an installer comes to your house to give you a reference point to whether they're giving you um, good information and a reasonable quote as well. If you're going to add batteries, the system cost is going to increase substantially. If you're talking about an off-grid, you're talking about a higher cost system uh, than this. So this is um, just to give you an illustration, project we installed on a barn several years ago. It was a 5.8 kilowatt system designed to supply 7,500 uh, kilowatt hours per year. Cost was about $14,000. And with the federal tax credit, the life cycle cost to the customer works out to about six cents per kilowatt hour. And so um, when you're thinking about the financial value of the solar energy system, one way to think about it is how much energy is it going to generate over the life of the system or over the warranty of the panels. So the panels are, photovoltaic panels are typically warranted for 25 years. If you figure how much energy is it going to produce over 25 years and divide that into the cost of the system, you'll get a, a, a rate per kilowatt hour. And for a typical net meter or grid tied system, the cost works out to the range of six or seven cents per kilowatt hour which is cheaper than most utility rates in Kentucky. Um, LG&E KU are around 10 cents per kilowatt hour. Most of the co-ops around the state are 10 cents or more per kilowatt hour. Now the utilities, they, they think about their power plant investments over the long term and boil it down to a cost per kilowatt hour. Um, and so as homeowners thinking about putting a power plant in our house, I think it's a good way to think about it also. You're making a long-term investment in your home. You're improving you know, the, the, the value of your house. And so if you think you're going to own your home for 20 years, you're going to be paying the utility company for 20 years. Or you could be paying uh, off this investment that, that adds to the value of your house and reduces your cost of energy at the same time. Now, there's a very simple website that estimates um, PV system sizing and power output, which is called PV Watts. It was developed by the National Renewable Energy Laboratory of the Department of Energy. And if you want to 
put in some, it's a pretty easy website to use. You put in some information about the size of the array, the angle of the array, the direction it's facing south or whatever, and you put in your zip code or your address, and then it uses weather data specific to your area to tell you how many kilowatt hours your array would produce every month. And it's um, pretty easy to use, and it's, I found it to be extremely reliable. Um, I have compared systems that I've installed over the years to what PV Wasa said that they would produce, and it's very close to what real system performance has been in my experience. So this, this slide just reiterates what I was saying earlier about looking at the life cycle cost of PV systems. Now, there are financial incentives available. Matt was lamenting earlier how few incentives there are in Kentucky, but, and that's true. For a couple years, we actually had a state tax credit, but that expired like 10 years ago already. So right now there's the federal tax credit, which is at 26% through the end of this year. So systems placed in operation by the end of this year can get 26% back as a, as a tax credit. In 2023, that will drop to 22%. And then after 2023, unless Congress ever does anything, the tax credit will go away for residential and it will drop to 10% for businesses. The tax credit applies to all of the solar equipment, the labor, and all basically all the costs associated with installing the system. There's another uh, federal program, the USDA REAP program, which provides grants and guaranteed loans for solar energy systems. They also provide grants for energy efficiency investments. These are for small businesses and farms. And so if you're located within the city limits of Louisville, you're probably not eligible for this grant program. But if you're in downtown Frankfurt, that qualifies as a rural area. Um, so you would be eligible. Um, so most of Kentucky outside of the, the major cities are, are available for this grant program. And the grant covers 25% of the project cost. And it's a somewhat time-intensive grant application. You really, really takes a fair amount of work to fill it out. Um, there are some people who consult on helping uh, fill out these applications, and I've done several of them. Earth Tools has gotten a number of REAP grants, but they can be a significant help for businesses that want to install <coughs> solar or other energy efficiency improvements. The Kentucky Agricultural Development Fund, which is a part of the Kentucky Department of Agriculture, <coughs> also offers grants to farmers for putting in solar and energy efficiency projects. And um, you can visit agpolicy.ky.gov to learn more about their grant programs. Well, I will wrap it up and say thank you for your attention. Thanks. What a font of knowledge. <laughs> so next we're going to dive deeper into the subject of batteries. You've been hearing them referred to several times, and I heartily agree with what Andy said, that if you just hook solar panels up to a battery without a controller, you'd ruin the battery array pretty quickly. And depending on the chemistry, you might get the whole thing to blow up. Uh, but um, Patrick's going to run down some of the possibilities and um, a little bit of the considerations. So I've been working with Semeda mostly on the Solar Over Louisville campaign. Uh, you know, we've had about 850 people sign up. I've probably talked to 400 of those people. So very much this presentation is really geared towards your general, you're a homeowner, you're interested in solar, you're thinking about battery storage. But if we sat down and had a conversation about it, we'd run out of things to talk about in about 30 seconds. This is geared to you. So yeah, battery storage is becoming increasingly common. About 30% of our projects 
include storage. Uh, so it's very much kind of considered an add-on still, but is increasingly common. So just a little bit about us at SES. I mean, there are dozens and dozens of solar installation companies here in the state, uh, a lot of which do really, really great work. So I know we've had some SES people here, but you could easily get half a dozen quotes and they'd all be from great installation companies. But just a little bit of background here. So give a little bit about SES. So based in Lexington, have an office in Louisville, but kind of operate regionally. So Indy, Cincy, basically the three states, Indiana, Ohio, uh, Kentucky. Um, over half of our projects are in Kentucky and, you know, a lot of residential, uh, but a mix of kind of institutional, large scale commercial, um, even some smaller kind of utility scale stuff. So yeah, uh, but, but certainly kind of pride ourselves on technical fluency, uh, much more consultative approach and are very kind of plugged into a lot of these upcoming trends and, and more common kind of questions around solar. But I will start with just a disclaimer of things I'm not going to talk about. So batteries can go, you can go through all sorts of, you know, uh, rabbit holes about it. There are loads of different types of battery storage systems. I'm going to try and use a broad brush stroke and hit the 75 to 95% of use cases here. Uh, so there will be things that I don't mention that are out there. I'm not going to talk about surret batteries. I'm not going to talk about lead acid or flow batteries. Certainly not utility scale. That's out there. That exists. You know, if you want to wire a bunch of Nissan Leaf batteries together, maybe Andy could build it. I'd prefer not to talk about it, honestly, because the vast majority of people are not doing these things. Uh, the vast majority of people are looking at kind of your simple lithium battery uh, that's covering a significant portion um, or doing a whole home kind of backup. So broadly, if you don't have solar and you're considering about battery storage, or if you have existing solar and are interested in batteries, you know, as I said, around a third of our projects include storage. So it's common, but not essential to a solar system. I mean, most systems are still grid tied, but a lot of folks that I talk to say, you know, it's probably not on the cards for now, but I want to be kind of battery ready. I'm interested in it. I want to learn more about it. And I want to make sure I don't do anything today that kind of locks me in and makes decisions I didn't know about that restricts me in the future. So, you know, principally as a homeowner, the way to think about battery storage, you know, the main thing is, you know, net metering and what your utility compensation structure is. You know, Andy touched on it. A lot of folks already know about net metering, but whatever your utility credits you when you push excess energy out to the grid, that's going to dictate how you should think about battery storage and whether or not it makes sense. So, you know, if you're down in Bowling Green and you have Warren, you know, County as, as your utility, you know, they credit you hardly anything if you push energy out onto the grid. Uh, that's a very different situation than if you live between Lexington and Louisville, most of those utilities credit you one to one. So just very, very kind of high level. One of the pitfalls to solar that most people assume is true that is not, is that if you just have solar only, you are not addressing any reliability need. So if the grid goes down, you're, you're down just like your neighbors if you just have eight or 10 kilowatt system on your home. Um, that's to prevent backfeeding out onto the grid. Uh, you can't control that energy production. And so it's a real safety hazard for the line men and women you know, out there solving the problem. You wanna prevent energy from backfeeding. So built into those inverters, since there's no grid voltage, shuts your array down. So you know, solar is addressing the environmental, the social, the you know, cost savings on utility bills certainly insulating yourselves from future price rises, it is not addressing my resiliency uh, in terms of energy. Um, so that's, that's some of the value added in a battery, right? Is that it does do that. If you have a utility 
that credits you very little for energy. There could also be some financial uh, savings to be had in a battery, which I'll get into uh, in the next slide here. But that's basically what it is, right? So the battery sits between your solar and the home. You know, rather than just going solar to your home, now it can be, you know, the grid goes down, solar feeds your battery, battery feeds your home, kicks on, it's an automatic process. The cons is that they are not cheap. So, you know, like Andy alluded to, it can double the cost of your, your installation if it's a relatively small system. You know, there's no situation where it's not a big chunk of the cost. And so that's like, you know, like I said, a lot of folks, you know, if they can't do it today, they opt for, let me do solar, let me be ready for battery storage, and then a year or two years down the line, uh, look to put that in. That's really common too, uh, and that's relatively simple. The other con is that, you know, all the manu major manufacturers, basically, of, the, of those lithium batteries, it's a 10-year warranty product, whereas your solar is 25 plus on pretty much all components, typically. Uh, so there is a little bit of that uh, time sink difference. Uh, which is kind of a drawback. I know a lot of folks here probably already know a lot about net metering, so I'm not gonna dive crazy into it, but that is sort of how I frame the two camps of how to think about battery storage, is you know fundamentally your solar is being tied into your home electrical panel. That's gonna be the first path for all of that energy. And so, you know, hard to say for any given home, but typically if you're trying to cover 100% of your usage on an annualized basis, roughly half is gonna get just immediately self-consumed. Right, it's gonna go right to your AC unit, refrigerator, whatever. You know, when that happens, it doesn't matter what the utility credits you for excess because you're cutting them out of the process altogether, right? You're not buying energy in the first place, so that's full retail value. However, it's 2 p.m., your solar's pushing energy out onto the grid, then it really does matter what your utility is and what they credit you. So, in around Bowling Green, it's like 20 to 30% of what you pay them. Uh, LG&E, it's like 60 to 65% uh, today. You know, basically between Lexington and Louisville, Intercounty, Bluegrass Energy, Shelby County, you know, all those utilities, it's full one-to-one. -one. And so, you know, if you do have that full one-to-one, -one, basically you're thinking about storage in a similar breath as like a backup generator, right? The value added there is totally in the resiliency, the reliability kind of bit, right? It's an automatic process. It kicks on immediately. You're certainly not having to worry about fuel cost. It's not crazy loud, uh, but it's a similar kind of purchasing decision as a generator. That's the need that you're filling there because it doesn't matter if you're pushing energy out to the grid or self-consuming it. If you're not having to buy energy in the first place, your utility is crediting you one-to-one. -one. If you have something that is short of that, so, you know, LG&E is a little bit short of that. KU's, you know, about 70% crediting today. But, you know, if you're in Duke, Indiana, after the end of this month, they're going to credit you similar to Bowling Green, where it's two to three cents a kilowatt hour. And so you can imagine some financial justification to a battery too, where let's say it's 2 p.m. and you had solar, well, now if you have a battery, it's gonna feed your home first, then that excess, instead of getting pushed out onto the grid, it goes to fill up a battery. You cycle the battery at 7 p.m. when you're making dinner. Great, you're not having to buy energy in those hours too. So there's a little bit of kind of energy arbitrage there that you're doing, where there is some financial justification. I will say right now in this area of the country, there's no one that buys a battery solely for that reason. That's kind of gravy on top. You're, you're probably addressing a reliability need too, because it's, it's kind of, back of the napkin arithmetic, right? It's like you're saving eight cents a kilowatt hour and it's, you know, 13 kilowatt hour battery. You're saving a couple dollars a day every day, but you know, you're spending 15 grand for a battery. That just doesn't, doesn't add up over 10 years. But those are the kind of ways to think about it and why you basically fall in two camps in terms of framing that decision. And given that kind of context, that's why it is important to not try and take on this task alone because most of these utilities 
uh, since we are blessed in Kentucky to not have a statewide net metering policy, every utility has their own rules. You know, it isn't the most straightforward for your typical kind of homeowner, right? And so you can look at a monthly utility bill and try and make expectations on how, you know, you're gonna use energy over a year, right? But if you're thinking about how much you're gonna self-consume versus push out to the grid, you know, that's an instantaneous bid, right? You're, you have monthly data and you're trying to, to make, you know, estimates based on how you're using energy instantly. And so that data does exist uh, sometimes. It's not something that a typical, you know, residential project would do, but I've seen it. So with Solar Over Louisville, you know, I had someone who had a smart meter on their home. They had 15 minute data on how they use energy all of last year. They sent me a big Excel file and I plugged it in and used some of our software to try and give them a good expectation on how they used energy uh, and how much they'd self-consume versus push out to the grid. It was more of someone that was just interested in that. Uh, you know, it's not like down to the dollar. You have to get every penny and understand exactly what my return on investment is, but it does help you get a sense, right? Um, and that's where like batteries are used in commercial applications because they are built in a very time sensitive manner. Uh, that's standard uh, for the kind of larger commercial institutional kind of bit. So we've got a big battery project at uh, Barbersville Library that is doing that sort of thing. They're trying to reduce demand charges and they're they're playing that sort of game. So that's out there and exists. Very rare on the residential scale to really care about it and do. But, you know, there is a level of uncertainty, right? If you are just looking at this and I don't get the, you know, energy nerd kind of homeowner that just really wants to know, right? What I'm doing is taking monthly data and you plugging it into like a generic Department of Energy provided residential load profile, um, or some utilities have load profiles on their customer base. But still, that's a huge pool of people and you're trying to make predictions about an individual home, right? Like there, there's, there's some fair uncertainty where maybe the data just doesn't exist. But again, the vast majority of people are not doing this. There's really not a huge need to do this a lot, uh, but it is out there. So just a little bit on, on kind of the current market as well. So. Um, there's a couple kind of major brands that pop up um, and are most commonly kind of used. Again, I'm hitting the 75 to 95% kind of realm of use cases. It's not going to be everything, but you hear a lot about Tesla Powerwall, Generac PowerCell, um, and Enphase as some of the major kind of battery manufacturers. There are, you know, Solark or other kind of manufacturers. Uh, Schneider's got a battery. Loads out there. But these ones are the ones that pop up again and again. So these are the ones I'm, I'm principally going to kind of address. Roughly on price, right? So most of the time, you know, like I said, batteries are not cheap. So, you know, if, if you're looking to cover a, a majority, like a lot of critical loads in your home or do a whole home backup, have a situation where the grid goes down, I don't even notice. You know, it's probably between fifteen dollars and $20,000 a unit. Typically, one is going to back up critical items in your home, but not everything, right? There are limitations for all of these products and you know, what size breakers they can back up, what the instantaneous draw is, that, those sorts of things. Um, so typically you're needing at least two to back up your typical kind of 2000 square foot home. There are some homes where it is appropriate to say, you really, if you're looking for grid goes down, I don't notice, you're talking three or four batteries. I mean, those, that's, those do exist and happen from time to time. And then again, it is totally fine and makes a lot of sense to approach things piecemeal if, if that's you know, what you can do at the time. So a lot of folks do solar and then want to be battery ready. They want to think about that decision and plan for that decision. Um, so long as you communicate that to an installer, relatively you know, straightforward to design with in mind, have it be cost effective and be plug and play uh, once you get down to it. 
So just like a couple practical things uh, in planning for battery storage. So like Tesla's brochure there has a battery outside. In Kentucky, don't put your battery outside. You know, if you have an outhouse, don't put it there, right? Like you, you do need a relatively kind of conditioned insulated space, right? In extreme heat and extreme cold, they're not gonna work as well. So garages, great places. Basements, great places. You know, don't put it in your bedroom. You, in fact, can't put it in your bedroom, right? Just some practical things about that. Think about space, you know, considerations. This cannot go in a tiny little closet, right? They are, you know, they're not huge and many can stack, uh, but still something to be mindful of and planning, particularly if you're, you know, doing a solar installation, right? You may not want all my infrastructure, bang, bang, bang. You may want to spread it out a little bit to allow some room for, for plug and play kind of later. And this is as technical as I'm going to get. Uh, so bear with me. It's not too deep, but it'll at least allow you to, to know more uh, than your average uh, kind of person in considering batteries. So there are, are, are basically two kind of basic schematics here of you know, designing these systems um, and that are AC coupled batteries uh, and then DC coupled batteries. So broadly, DC coupled systems are more efficient, but they're typically more expensive because the labor is more intricate and, and timely. I'm not sure that that's inherent in the DC AC kind of question. I think that's more to do with Tesla and Enphase just being designed well to be relatively plug and play, but that's kind of the case with the market now. So if you'll see uh, on the top, that is your basic kind of Tesla AC coupled solution. So the reason that DC is more efficient is because, you know, your solar goes through an inverter, it's converted from DC to AC. Typically, you know, you're feeding the home first, you're, prior you're prioritizing the home, right? And then any excess, instead of getting pushed to the grid, it's going to a battery. Well, in that battery, you've got another inverter, right? That converts it and stores it as DC power. So you're converting once through the inverter, through your solar inverter, again through the battery to store it as DC power. And then 7 p.m., you're making dinner, you discharge, there's your third conversion, right? And again, this is broad brushstrokes here, but typically, you know, you're having three DC-AC conversions in that cycle, right? A DC coupled system, typically you're just having one. Right, you have a you know DC input, a DC output. You're going through that solar you know inverter obviously to feed the home, but it's just happening once. But again, uh, typically more intricate kind of labor. Uh, I think Steve jokes that his you know basement looks like a nuclear power plant. I don't know that that's always typical, but yeah, that's kind of the that's kind of the trade-off you're making. Um, and and the reason that's important is because your inverter selection, if you're going solar today and you're thinking batteries two years from now, what inverter you choose kind of locks you into one of these schematics. It doesn't necessarily, you can always retrofit and change out inverters, right? But if you wanted something that would be applicable for a DC coupled battery, you've read a bunch about, you know, Generac PowerCell and you really want that, great. You should tell your installer that because uh, that would affect their inverter selection from the onset. So those are the kind of things that do matter. It's, Again, it's not like you can't retrofit it, but you would swap out an inverter and you'd be paying an extra, you know, $1,500 or whatever that product is. Um, so in terms of designing cost effectively, those are the things that you want to at least be thinking about and have a good grasp on from the onset. So honestly, the majority of people, if you have solar today and you're just now thinking about batteries, you're likely looking at an AC coupled solution. You're likely looking at Tesla Powerwall, Enphase, any of these AC brands. It's going to be more cost effective typically. And then I'll also just kind of add as an interest in where things are going uh, with this is that there are all kinds of kind of home energy devices here 
that are we going to think more intelligently about how we're using our solar and storage. Uh, so one that I'm really excited about, and there are other products very similar, uh, it's like a span. It's a smart electric panel where grid goes down, you preset must have, nice to have, non-essential. And it pings your phone and says, you know, you've got eight hours. Do you want to drop these things or do you want to keep them? Right. And you can do yes, yes, no, or whatever. And it tells you, here's how much you can expect now uh, for things to last you. You know, that's probably the trickiest question that I will get from the onset is people are like, how long will a battery last you? And it's like, I don't know, because <laughs> um, there's so many things. It's how much solar do you have? You know, what are we backing up? Are we just backing up your refrigerator and some lights and some outlets? Or are we trying to attack a heat pump and an EV and a hot tub, right? Um, level of so solar, level of storage, what we're trying to back up. Those have huge implications on, you know, how long things are expected to last you. As a broad range, typically the lowest end I see where I think this is the expectation I'd set thinking week-long February ice storm. On the low end, you know, I've had folks where it's like eight to 12 hours. Typically you're in the like day, day and a half realm. You know, the nice thing about having storage is that your solar does continue to top off a battery in an outage, which is not true solar only. Uh, so if the grid goes down and it's, you know, June, great. You know, it could be four or five days because you're continuing to refill that battery every single day. Um, that's typically not the situation where people are worried about batteries and buying it. They're worried about the ice storm. Um, so I, I never really count on that. But yeah, the other just kind of note I will add here uh, before getting back to the, the whole home kind of electrification, but is that different batteries have different storage capacities. Uh, so they're all within a, a lot of them are within a, you know, relatively close range. Um, but if you're looking at price points, right, it is not necessarily an apples to apples comparison. Right, so like Generac's battery, for example, it's a nine kilowatt hour battery uh, that has cabinets to expand to like 18, I believe. Uh, you know, Tesla Powerwall sits in the middle of that, so it's 13 and a half. So if the Generac battery is a little bit more, you know, less expensive, that's probably actually not a better value because it's, you know, significantly less capacity. Um, so that's the way I would frame it. Um, and there are also, you know, Sometimes I'll get calls from people that are like, I found this battery that was dirt cheap. And I look up a spec sheet and it's like a one kilowatt hour battery. You know, that's like a couple outlets, right? Like that's, that's nothing. And that's the reason that it's dirt cheap. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there are other things that, that sense kind of, and give you breaker level data on exactly what, you know, my loads are using in any given moment. Um, and I think could be a really kind of intelligent way to, not have to spend as much on storage and not need as much storage capacity because you're stretching it further and further. Um, so that's just beginning to emerge. We've installed like a couple of these span panels and there are other products like it, but uh, that's some of the things that are coming and are exciting um, and, and interesting about battery storage. And the last little bit I'll kind of leave with is some batteries are relatively kind of simple to install, but you know, it is certainly more of an undertaking than your traditional kind of solar uh, installation. Uh, some of these can be complex installations. You wanna make sure that somebody knowledgeable and with some technical expertise is, is doing this. Um, so a very kind of easy way uh, to do that. And I won't spiel into some of Steve's bit here later, but um, is NABCEP certification. Uh, so North American Board of Certified Electrical Practitioners. Um, you wanna make sure that the person doing your install uh, probably is, is NAPSEP certified, um, or at least is like there and physically present in, in an office, not just like something that's stuck on somebody's website. 
that's a very clear like check yes or no my installers got that um to know that you're dealing with someone that knows a lot not to say that you can't know a lot and not have that but that's a very good and simple kind of benchmark uh to check um and again i don't want to rush into steve's bit too much either but if anyone tells you you have to have a battery that you're either uninformed or lying <laughs> you know it's common it's growing it's really exciting but loads of grid tight systems out there still a majority of projects are kind of just traditional solar it's something that you know maybe in the next couple of years will be more like half of projects uh but still it's, it's it's a different need that you're trying to address for a different reason and certainly comes at a price point And that is how the presentation on batteries for home solar applications wrapped up back on June 4th at the Kentucky Solar Energy Society's annual meeting. Forward Radio was there in Ekstrom Library at the University of Louisville recording all of it for you. And I've been so excited to share it with you here on Sustainability Now. We just heard from Patrick Farrell of Solar Energy Solutions. And before him giving a Solar Energy 101 talk was Andy McDonald. Donald, director of Apogee Climate and Energy Transitions, which is a program of Earth Tools. Great stuff, and I hope to bring you uh, the rest of that great annual meeting on a future program. But for now, my friends, it's time to get your pencils sharpened and your calendars out. Get ready for action in sustainability this week. Declare your independence this week, so stay tuned. And we are back here on Sustainability Now, celebrating our independence this week in so many hopefully unconventional ways. That's what I want you to think about. So first of all, let's think about how we could declare our independence from the corporate agriculture that has just been raping the land and oppressing workers and concentrating all of the small farms and ever, ever larger parcels and just pricing people out of the industry and, of course, depopulating the landscape while filling it with chem agrochemicals and GMOs and everything we don't want, right? Well, what if you relocalized your food shed and started eating more locally? Of course, you can grow your own food. We talk about that on the program a lot. But you can also shop local. And the best way to do that is at our local farmer's market. So I want to give you a rundown. Get your pencils out, my friends of all the incredible farmers markets that take place in Louisville during the summer. Make sure to check out all these great farmers markets on offer in Louisville. So on Mondays, there's a farmers market on Mondays from 3 to 7 at Beulah Farmers Market at 6704 Bardstown Road. Then on Tuesdays, there's a couple options. The Phoenix Hill New Lou Farmers Market at 1007 East Jefferson Street is on Tuesdays from 3 to 6. There's also an East End Farmers Market way out on Factory Lane uh, on Tuesdays from 5 to 7. 
Then on Wednesdays from 3 to 6, there's a Middletown Farmer's Market at 11721 Main Street in Middletown. On Thursday, there's a couple options. First Thursdays at 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., the Gray Street Farmer's Market right here in downtown Louisville tackles food apartheid directly. It's at Gray Street between Preston and Jackson in front of Public Health, uh, sponsored by UofL and Metro Public Health, and it's at 400 East Gray. First Thursdays from 10 to 2 Every Thursday from 3 to 6, you can hit up the Brownsboro Road Farmer's Market at 4000 Brownsboro Road. Then on Saturday, oh my gosh, so many markets on Saturday. The St. Matthew's Farmer's Market, uh, 4100 Shelbyville Road, is on Saturdays from 8 a.m. to noon. The J-Town Farmer's Market on Waterson Trail is Saturdays from 8 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. The Westport Road Baptist Farmer's Market at 9705 Westport Road is on Saturdays from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. The Bardstown Road Farmer's Market at 1733 Bardstown Road is on Saturdays from 9 to noon. The Prospect Area Farmer's Market at 12900 West Highway 2442 is on Saturdays from 9 a.m. to 12.30 the Douglas Loop Farmer's Market is at uh, 2005 Douglas Boulevard on Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. And the West End Farmer's Market, a new one, is at 1821 West Jefferson Street on select Saturdays from noon to 3. And finally, you can hit up some farmer's markets on Sundays, 12 to 4, at either Rainbow Blossom, uh, 3738 Lexington Road, or Norton Commons Farmer's Market at 6301 Moonseed Street. Hit them up. Now, we can also declare our independence from uh, corporate uh, tools by sharing the tools we need, right? You don't have to buy your own, spend a bunch of money for something you're going to use once or just occasionally. Well, there's a new library in town to support and to patronize the Louisville Tool Library over on Logan Street in Shelby Park is opening just this week. It is a community-based 501c3 nonprofit lending library dedicated to accessibility of resources, waste reduction, and growth through education. Operating similarly to a traditional book-filled library, members of the Louisville Tool Library are able to borrow household items such as gardening gear, sewing machines, drills, painting supplies, shovels, and more. You can learn more about the library and how to support it with your donation of tools, funding, and volunteer time at LouisvilleToolLibrary.com. Now, coming up on Friday, July 8th, there is another Zoning Matters Conversations with the City Planner event. They are doing a rotating series of hitting up all the Louisville Free Public Library branches. This Friday, July 8th, they'll be out at the Fairdale branch. And boy, you have some, you definitely have some development code issues out that away. Uh, from 11 a.m. to 4.30 at the Fairdale branch, these conversations are part of the ongoing land development code reform and equity-focused approach to revise the land development code consistent with Plan 2040 to allow for increased housing choices in new and existing neighborhoods to Create procedures and regulations that are easier to use and to increase the quality of life by reducing the concentration of environmental hazards near housing. So Joel Dock from Louisville Metro's Office of Planning and Design Services will be available.
available at the Fairdale branch on Friday from 11 to 4.30 to answer your questions about zoning and discuss the ongoing reform project. They want to hear from you about your neighborhood and discuss what the reform means for you. Learn more at louisvilleky.gov. Just search for Land Development Code Reform. And also coming up this Sunday, you can declare your independence from litter by joining Brightside for a sweep and sip event on Sunday, July 10th from 11.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Goodwood New Lou, 636 East Main Street. They're continuing their monthly event series in July on the 10th from 11.30 to 1 at Goodwood New Lou. Bring your friends to clean up the New Lou area and stay for a cold brew. Uh, shout out to Louisville Young Democrats for being their July volunteer sponsor. And you get more information at Brightside Inc. That's I-N-C dot O-R-G. And look for Sweep and Sip under the Clean menu. Just come on out Sunday, July 10th, 1130 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Goodwood Nulu on Main Street. Hey, and speaking of that, brews and declaring your independence from the automobile. Well, every Sunday at noon, there is a bikes, cruise, and brews rolling out of Logan Street Market. Bike through Louisville with a community partner, Bikes, Cruise, and Brews. It's a great way to meet new folks. They welcome all biking levels with different routes each week. Rollout occurs every Sunday at noon for a low-stress cruise with local brewery stops along the way, returning to Logan Street Market around 3 p.m. if you want to join them for the whole time. Come on out this Sunday at noon at Logan Street Market. And lastly, hey, you can declare your independence from buying honey by growing your own and keeping pollinators on your property. And the Kentuckiana Beekeepers Association is here to help you learn how to do that. They have great field days all summer long. And this coming Sunday, July 10th at 5 p.m., their field day is going to be out at McGill's Apiary. You won't want to miss this chance to get in the hive with some fellow beekeepers uh, and learn from them. Whether you're a new bee or an experienced beekeeper, these are always great events. So learn more at kyannabees.com. K-Y-A-N-A-B-E-E-S.com. And that's all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. Thank you so much for tuning in. Happy Independence Day, everybody. And I look forward to being back in your ears again in one week's time. Be well. <laughs>